very good motivation. And uh, we're now in the fourth week of our summer series, Majors in the Minors, which meant major things in the minor prophets. And uh, we've said this before, we'll say it every single week. Why are we doing this? We're doing this because every book of the Bible points to Jesus in some way, shape, or form. Um, Jesus himself said that we do. In 27, he uh, began. Well, we read, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them, the two guys that he was walking with, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So I've uh, told this little story before, but it fits really well with what we're saying today. So I'm going to tell it again. Uh, It's about a man called John Patton, who was a missionary uh, to the South Pacific country that we would now refer to as Vanuatu. And uh, one night he and his wife were in their um, home and a group of uh, locals who were very hostile towards them uh, gathered with the intent of burning the house and killing the patterns. Uh, so they prayed throughout the night, and when they awoke in the morning, they were amazed to see that these guys had just left. And a year later, the chief of the tribe became a believer in Jesus, and remembering what had happened, Patton uh, asked the chief, why did you not burn our house down that night? And the chief was really surprised And he said, well, it was because all of the men who were stood around your house. And John Patton knew that there were were no men there, but the chief said he was absolutely sure that he didn't attack because he'd seen, quote, hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords circling the mission station. So for John Patton, he had their saviors, deliverers, rescuers present without even knowing it. And today, that's one of the big things that we're going to talk about, rescue deliverers and a savior. So what book are we on today? We're on the fourth week of our uh, Minor Prophets study and we're in Obadiah. Uh, If you can open your Bible at Obadiah first time, then see me afterwards uh, for a prize. Uh, Obadiah and the big theme that we're talking about is deliverance. And just when you say that word, deliverance, how do you feel? You feel you feel kind of hopeful, you feel encouraged, you kind of stand up a bit straighter, your shoulders go back, and you feel good talking about deliverance, don't you? So, background facts about Obadiah. Uh, His name, Obadiah, means worshiper of God or servant of God. It's a nice name. Uh, There were 13 Obadiahs in the Old Testament, so one of them could have written this, but we're not too sure, not uh, explicitly sure. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's just 21 verses. It's one chapter, and there are four books in the New Testament that have just got one chapter, and I wondered how many people could name those four books. The second and third John, and there are two other books in the New Testament with just one chapter. Second and third John, Jude, and Philemon. Yeah, four books in the New Testament, just with one chapter. Uh, Obadiah likely written between 850 and 840 BC, and at first look, it's not overwhelmingly positive. It's a series of divine judgment uh, poems. It's a poetry book, a little bit like the other minor prophets that we've looked at so far. Uh, And it's against Edom. It's kind of unique because it's addressed predominantly to a group of people who were not God's people. Uh, We read about Edom last week in Amos. They've got a shared ancestry with Israel. And interestingly, Obadiah shares his message, well, the, the the message of verses 1 to 5 with Jeremiah 49. And that shows us that God can use a message already written and given in one context to reveal his will and to speak to his people uh, in a different context as well. Uh, like we said, the focus is on Edom, descended from Esau, twin brother of Jacob. And for a bit of context, we're going to read from Genesis 25. 
verses 19 to 24. If you're following on the Bible app, this is already there for you. If you're in your Bibles, you can flick back to the first book. So Genesis 25, we'll pick it up in verse 24. When her days, this is uh, Jacob and Esau's mother, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in the womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah was the mother. Rebekah loved Jacob. So they've got a shared ancestry, Jacob and Esau. And we need to know Esau in Hebrew means hairy. The, the description of a baby would be quite a shocking sight. His baby comes out and it's got a big red hairy cloak on. Uh, and Edom means red. And uh, in the language that this was written in in Hebrew, Edom, red, and Adam, humanity, are very, 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 very similar. There's just a couple of very, very minor differences in the spelling of the word. And as we progress through our diary, it will be very, very useful for us to remember this. Sometimes we're talking about Edom. Sometimes we're talking about Adam. We're either talking about this group of people or we're talking about bigger picture, all of us. And like we said, with the Bible and prophecy, it's often got a, a local specific immediate fulfillment and a bigger picture fulfillment. And that's really helpful for us to know Edom, Adam, this people or all people. We'll see that as we, uh, as we get into it. So with that said, what did they say? What did Obadiah say? So by way of a quick outline, the first 14 verses are accusations against Edom, pride, self-exaltation, and the coming judgment of God on this. And we've said a couple of times now, and we need to remember that God is holy and righteous and pure and must take action against the sin that he sees. Verse 15 is really the hinge piece of the whole thing. Uh, we go from talking to one nation to many, as we just said. And essentially, the message in there is, as you do, so will, so will you have done to you. And there are shades of Genesis chapter 12 in that, uh, in that passage. And then verses 16 to 21, all of the nations come under the spotlight. And there are lessons to learn for all of us, no matter who we are and where we are from. Obadiah's prophecy then is, is primarily a judgment on Edom for pride, self-exaltation, and their horrible treatment of God's people. So we'll read a few verses together. Uh, we'll read verses 3 and 4 of Obadiah. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So pride is very deceptive. Pride makes us think things about ourselves and about other people that is just not true. And for Edom, the Edomites, pride would be their ultimate undoing. It would deceive them into thinking that nobody could ever conquer them. And really, really simply, as a nation, they felt like they had moved past their need for God. And there's a lesson in there for us straight away, isn't it? As a nation, as a people, they thought they had it all together, their location, their allies, their wisdom, and they just moved past the need for God. And contributing to this was where they lived, and we would now call where they live Petra. And if anybody's been to Petra, it's apparently there's a lot, very long, narrow uh, entrance walkway, and then there's this big 
rock wall city and it was pretty undefeatable. Uh, and Edom trusted in their natural protection, in the natural protection of the rocks over the supernatural protection of God. They trusted in their own learned wisdom over the supernatural wisdom of God. We read, you who live in the clefts of the rock. They lived in high, high, high caves above the ground and they felt totally safe from enemy attacks and therefore like, they didn't really need God anymore. Some had settled in caves that were so high, metaphorically it was like their eagles nesting in the stars. And Obadiah writes, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars. And in response to this, this arrogant, prideful state that they were in, you know, the, the thought is, who can bring me down? Who on earth is going to attack us living in these caves where we can see everybody coming from miles away? Nobody's going to get to us. And God answers and says, from there, I will bring you down. So Edom's kind of, who is going to bring us down from this lofty, really safe place? And God says, me, I will bring you down. So pride is a problem for them. Pride is a problem for us. Pride is just not all right. Be really simple. Uh, as the old saying goes, pride goes before a fall. But it's kind of a, that's a truth from the Bible, but it's kind of watered down a bit because Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction. So pride is not something that just causes us to have a bad day here and there. If we're living with an attitude of pride, if we're living a prideful life, God's word says pride goes before destruction and that actually did happen for the Edomites and we'll get there. So unlike Joel, where there was no specific sin, Joel just assumed that his people knew where they were living wrong. We've already got pride and as we continue through what Obadiah said, we get to another quite specific sin, the mistreatment of those in your family. As we get to verse 10, we read, because of the pride done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you should be cut off forever. And that's that thing of, of treating people in your family not right. Mistreating your own family. And God lists the specific charges against them. And it goes back really to their, their ancestral feud, if you will, between Jacob and Esau. And from then on, uh, violence and conflict really characterized the relationship between uh, their respective descendants. And finally, as, as, as we read, Eden would get the shame that they deserved for the way they had treated God's people, their kinsmen, their family. And ultimately, they would lose all of their national identity because God would come through on his word and they would be destroyed. And history shows that this did come true between 66 and 70 AD when they fought against the Romans. And as a nation, they no longer exist. So this actually did come true as God's word always does. Uh, yet, last week in Amos, we read that there will be a remnant of Edom. And this is where we start to think Edom and Adam, a little bit of both. There'll be some people left, but as a nation, they're, they're not. Part of the nations, all nations who were called by my name, we read. And there's so often a remnant left. Like we said with, uh, with Hosea, with Joel, and with Amos, there is always hope. But as a nation, no, they were destroyed bringing an, an extra, another layer of truth to God's word. So the main charge against Edom uh, revolved around the events uh, surrounding the destruction and the, uh, the exile of Jerusalem by Babylon. And Edom stood on the side, and we can see as we get through verses uh, 10 through to 14, it just gets worse and worse and worse for Edom. 
First, they stood. They stood aloof, just watching, not helping, while strangers carried off Israel's wealth. And as the city burned and and as treasures were taken, Edom made no effort to respond and actually laughed about it. We read, uh, do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Don't rejoice about this. Don't be happy that part of your extended family is, is, is having a really tough time. Then they joined in the looting. And then finally, in verse 14, they stopped people escaping from this tragedy. They stopped people escaping and actually handed them over to the Babylonians. And some, some sins are worse. People say, oh, all, all sin is the same. And in some senses, that's right. Sin is sin, and, and it puts distance between us and God. Some sins are worse depending on who we sin against. It's a sin to treat people badly. It's worse for us to treat a brother or sister in Jesus badly. It's a sin to speak harshly to anyone. It's worse to speak to your husband or your wife like that, isn't it? your children like that. And sometimes things are very specific. So standing here, not helping God's people, their family when they're trying to escape and actually stopping them and handing them over to the captives is bad. So specific sins this week, Obadiah is speaking against. And then in verse 15, he opens this up. He goes global, he goes big picture. And in verse 15, we read, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. And here he turns that, that glorious day of the Lord that we've talked about almost every week now. People expect victory, celebration, and joy. And he turns it around to, and opens it up to everybody upon all the nations. And it's, we see here then that the day of the Lord is not just a local event for one particular country or community to celebrate. It's It's... Obadiah, he's gone gone really big picture, he's gone global, and he expanded the day of the Lord to international dimensions. And it covers you, and it covers me, and it covers all of us. The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And this literally means all nations. It means Gentiles, pagans, heathens, uncultured, any people that are part of national Israel, any people that are not part of national Israel. It just, it means... It says what it means, and it means what it says. But then there's hope. As we get to 17, we read, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. And even though they'll be destroyed by God's wrath, God's people in God's grace, will experience deliverance. And God's covenant people who trust him will ultimately be delivered. They'll be set apart unto God to live with him. And the certainty of this truth is just underlined with the words, for the Lord has spoken. So this is not what Obadiah thinks based on something else. This is what God says. He said it, and therefore we just, we just don't question it, do we? God has said this will happen Uh, Therefore, it's going to happen. Verses 19 and 20 describe some of the territories to be restored to God's people. And then in verse 21, the last verse, we read, Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But we see from Obadiah, what he's saying is saying that one, 
people who respond in obedience to the grace of God have everything to gain. A person who turns away from God's grace in personal pride has everything to lose. That's what Obadiah is saying. That's what we see in Obadiah. So that's what he's saying. Or what does he mean? Is there a moral lesson in here for us? How do we uh, adjust our lives? And we said that oftentimes with minor prophets, they're viewed as giving a, a good moral lesson. And that's what you talk about with the minor prophets. But we've said there's so much more than a moral lesson. But in here, there is, there is a moral lesson for us, but there's so much more as well. We see that pride is not acceptable for anyone. God's people are not God's people. Again, in verse 15, that shows us that this is for everyone. The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And as we said last week in Amos, the standards of behavior for God's people, the conduct of God's people, needs to be even higher than the nations around them. Here, specifically, Judah needed to learn the lessons that Edom had not learned, and bigger picture, so do we. I want, to think, I want you to think for a moment, what creates enemies for you in your personal relationships or in your business relationships or even your church relationships? What attitudes do you have that maintain conflict rather than restoring friendship? And I'd suggest that at the core of that, at the core of conflict that you cannot get past, most likely will be pride. And we see that pride goes before a fall, as the world says, God, God's word says, pride goes before destruction. But God has a plan of deliverance and renewal for his people. So we can't hold on to pride. We need to check it at the door, never pick it up again. Change our self-confidence in what we do, where we are and what we've got into a, uh, into a God confidence in who he is, what he's said, and what he's done and what he will do. And we need to give control of our lives to him and not trance around ourselves in a, a wonderful place that we feel safe in and rely on our own wisdom. And he can, he can run our lives and manage our lives and control our lives and, and have our lives flourish far better than we ever can. And again, just coming back to verse 21, it's, it's very, very encouraging. It might just be the central, the central purpose of what Obadiah is saying. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion, to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord. So Obadiah is telling God's people, he's telling God's people here immediately, and he's telling us as well, not to worry when, when we're, our needs are ignored by people around us, those who rejoice at our problems, those who take advantage of those problems. Don't worry about people who join hands with others in, a, in attacking us. The, the message, what Obadiah is trying to communicate, is that God will take care of this. But as we've said with the minor prophets, what we really want to see is how they, they point to the greater reality and truth of Jesus. We want to see the gospel in Obadiah, don't we? And it's a bit of a deeper dig this week. Uh, some books are easier to see Jesus in than others. You know, when we talked through uh, Hosea, we said that Hosea bought Gomer back out of a sinful lifestyle, even though uh, she was his wife, she was already his. Uh, some Old Testament books speak very explicitly of the cross. Many speak of the coming Messiah, quite obviously. But Obadiah is a little bit more obscure. But it's a book in the Bible, it's the words of a prophet, and therefore it, 
it, it's going to point to Jesus. So the gospel and the, the bigger picture in Obadiah confirms this wonderful promise of the gospel that God will deliver his people. God's rescue, the deliverance of his people is, is really, again, bigger picture, the theme of the whole Bible. And that's what God promises through the words of Obadiah. Deliverance, rescue, and restoration for his people. And that's possible for believers now through faith in Jesus. No matter how scattered or persecuted or despondent his people were or are, God will restore and deliver his people. Jesus came to deliver, to redeem, to restore all people from all situations. It doesn't really, well, it doesn't, it just doesn't matter at all what we are struggling with, the chains that we've all got. Jesus came to break those chains. Amen? He came to save us, and that applies to all of us, but He came to save us individually from our individual struggles and chains, and Jesus came to break all of those. He came to save us, plural, and He came to save you as an individual as well. There's no chain that He cannot and will not break. And his word tells us that he will gather his people from, well, his people will be from all peoples and nations and tribes and tongues. And again, if you just look around, you will see that that this group of people is just a wonderful, small preview of heaven. When there's people from all nations and tribes and tongues who gather and assemble together with a shared love for Jesus. Verse 17, very interesting, in lots, in, in lots of different Bible translations, reads, But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And then 18 to 20, flesh it out. And then this last verse, again, verse 21, echoes the ultimate triumph of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We'll talk about verse 21. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And remember the the multi-fulfillment, if you will, of true biblical, scriptural, from the mouth of God prophecy. It's fulfilled immediately. There's There's an immediate fulfillment to give it credibility, to prove that this is God's word. And that was the deliverance of God's people. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That happened. These people were destroyed. God's people were put back in their land. Medium term, kind of now for you and for me, Savior's going up to Mount Zion carries the meaning of the people who are spreading the gospel. So it says saviors, plural, people who introduce, people, the people who introduced you to the truth of Jesus, people who share the good news. So that's, that's you, and that's me, and that's us as the church. Bigger picture. And then ultimately, Obadiah's words here are reflected and they're fulfilled in Revelation 11, verse 15. That says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So the final line of Obadiah points towards this big idea that God will deliver his people. Jesus began his his earthly ministry by announcing that it's now. The time has been fulfilled. This is happening. 
this is here right now. The first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark say, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Jesus could claim that because he was and is the the, the long-promised rescuer, deliverer, and king who brought to life, so to speak, that kingdom of God that showed people this is what it looks like, this is what it's like. And he did that through his perfect obedience, his miraculous ministry, his sacrificial death, his wonderful resurrection, and his triumphant ascension. And we know because his word says so that one day we'll return. So only God, only God knows where we are individually, truly uh, at. Only God knows who, in Obadiah's account, who we are. Whether we are his people being put through trials and temptations and, and tough times, or whether we are actually kind of part of this family, but we're kind of looking on and not doing anything. And whether we're kind of laughing at things that we shouldn't be laughing at. Oh, well, we're not really helping. Only God knows where we are at individually. But what I, what I can tell you is that God deeply desires a very personal relationship with each and every one of us. And as we've read here today, there'll be deliverance from the consequences of our sin in Jesus. There'll be deliverance in Jesus because Jesus is the promised deliverer. Amen? Absolutely. In verse 17 again, there shall be deliverance And there shall be holiness. And this puts to bed any notion that we can do anything about this, that we can affect our own deliverance. Uh, Author Frank Gabelin said that this shows how the human element is just not required to bring about deliverance, to, to even help our deliverance along. It's nothing to do with us. Because we read there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. And I don't know about you, I'm not bringing much holiness. I'm not bringing any holiness to my own salvation and sanctification. And we've talked about pride. And I think if, if we're going to stand and if we're going to say, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty holy. Then actually we're in the place of Edom where, we're, where pride is, is letting us think things about ourselves that's just not true. No, let's, let's just be frank. No person apart from Jesus is holy. There shall be deliverance, there shall be holiness. Therefore, it's just, it's nothing to do with us. It's all to do with him. And then looking forward, we're going to possess our possessions. And we're not going down that road of saying that you're going to be materially wealthy and, and, and you know, live your best life now. That's not what it's about. But no people on earth have a richer and greater inheritance than believers in Jesus. And that is something for us to, to take great encouragement from. Every need that we have is answered in God's riches in glory in Jesus. We've, full, we've got the full revelation of his word to us that we carry around in the Bible, the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. But so many people don't possess this. They just, they understand this. And they would pass the Christian exam, who is Jesus? What did he do? What happens when you put faith and hope and trust in him? Who are you indwelt by? You, the people would pass that exam and they, had, and they admire these wonderful truths about Jesus and they try to understand it. But when trouble comes and we read things like Psalm 23 and think, yes, God is my shepherd. It's very good. 
We don't need to ad- admire these wonderful truths about him. This word tells us we need to possess this truth. Take it and make it ours. Put it to use by, by, by trusting in it. Believing in this truth. Pass that exam. Understand what we're talking about. Sure. But then live this truth. Put it, put it into action. Don't just look at it and appreciate it for what it is. We need to believe this. We need to live this. Because the substances, the substance of the promise of Obadiah are promises for those who have faith in Jesus. So the promise is for you and the promise is for me. Jesus is the redeemer. He's the rescuer. He is the savior. Singular. God's people here were delivered from their earthly enemies and from the church, for the church of Jesus, capital C, the called out faithful saints who believe in him. That's deliverance from sin's power. And let's be really clear, we don't wake up tomorrow free of every, every chain and, and bondage that we've ever experienced, but it's little, it's little by little now that becomes ultimate deliverance when we see him face to face. So it's not, you don't wake up tomorrow free and like a, a, a perfect person, but there is the power inside you to make small steps each and every day. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce said this. He said, if you are not a believer in Christ, God tells you to believe in him now. And that might be some people here. If you're not a believer in Christ, God says to do it. All wise knowing, like Andre referenced, God who created heavens and earth tells you, if you're not a believer in Jesus, do it. Just do it. And Boyce carries on and says, if you are a believer, then possess your great possessions. Stop appreciating and start living these wonderful possessions, these living in the light of these promises, these truths of Jesus. So for us today, then God's people, the, 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 rem, the remnant of his people is the church, the, the, the global church, capital C, of which we are just one local expression of it. It's made up bigger picture of all who have submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, who believed in heart and confessed with mouth that he is who he says he is, that he is God in the flesh, that God did raise him from the dead, that he died to take away our sin, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven and that he will come again. Amen? That's what, that, that's in, in a nutshell, that's what we believe, isn't it? And as in the Old Testament, God promised deliverance for his people as a nation and that happened Look it up, read about it. This stuff happened. God promised deliverance for his people as a nation. And now he does so for his people, the church. He does so for you. He does so for me. And he does so for us as a family of people. So as we wrap up then, we, need to, we should read Obadiah with hope, with assurance, but with some humility as well. Because as we said, God will deliver his people. And his people now are people who have put faith and hope and trust in Jesus. Amen? Amen. So we're going to spend a moment also in prayer. We're going to invite the worship team up as we do. And uh, let's just think about the words of Boyce again. If you are not a believer in Christ, God tells you to believe in him now. And if you are a believer, then possess your great possessions. So we'll spend a moment also in personal prayer, just considering where we are at. 
have we put faith enough and trust in Jesus or are we going to do it now? And if we have, then what do we need to possess? What, is, what did Jesus die to provide that we are just admiring but we're not really possessing? So we'll spend a moment also in personal prayer and then we'll, we'll, we'll close and we'll pray together. And I'm going to ask that you join me in raising a holy hand in prayer. God's word shows us lots of different postures for prayer. Uh, Abraham laid out on his face. Jesus looked up to heaven. People did different things. But raising a hand in prayer says we need something from you. This is an open hand and we need something from you. We're not gonna, we can't do this by ourselves. If you're part of God's frozen chosen, that's all right. You can raise half a hand in your, in your seat and make sure that nobody uh, sees you. But if you, if you do, if you, if, you, if you put in a hand up, you're going to feel more connected and more part of uh, this family. So we'll spend a moment or so in personal prayer. Where are we at with our faith? And then we'll pray together.